Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek, the best way to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone today and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 28th, 2018, as this episode is released on Memorial Day. And for those that are listening to this show that have lost a loved one serving in the United States military, we are grateful for the ultimate sacrifice they made to allow us the freedoms we cherish every day. On this week's show, joining us from Fangraphs.com is Eric Loggenhagen. He gives us insight from the backfields in Arizona, from where he got a chance to see Alec Henson's rehab start. He also gets an opportunity to see which international and recent draftee prospects are impressing and his thoughts on the upcoming Major League Baseball draft, which is next week. We'll have the minor league report as Aloy Jimenez continues to break down in Birmingham and, of course, answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, we, we will recap the action from Detroit as the White Sox took one out of three against the Detroit Tigers as they are now 16-34 and 34 on the season. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox looked competent this weekend. Yes, highly watchable, despite being pretty undermanned. I mean, game one, they had an early lead and it felt like they were in control. And the last time they faced the Tigers, Bruce Rondon looked terrific. This time, the Tigers, his old team, got the last laugh winning that game 5-4. to four. 
The second game was highly enjoyable. Eight to four was that game. A little scary in the ninth inning because, uh, you know, they can't make it ever easy to close out games. But Tim Anderson, three home runs this weekend. Jose Abreu now tied for the major league lead with 19 doubles on the year. He's on pace for like 62 doubles. Major league record is 67. So it was a big weekend for a couple of players for the White Sox. Obviously, with all the injuries, I mean, it's nice to see Daniel Polka get some hits. Jose Rondon now has three home runs in the year. He had his third home run on Sunday. Uh, but runs, as you can imagine from watching this weekend, are, are going to be difficult for the White Sox as they do have some injuries. Uh, but if Jose Abreu and Tim Anderson can continue hitting like this and Yohan Mikata is not batting right-handed, uh, there may be some hope for the White Sox to have some big outcomes. And I want to start the conversation with Jose Abreu, Jim, because, you know, we mentioned this in the last couple of podcasts. I think for White Sox fans that we take for granted on how great Jose Abreu is offensively. This weekend, he was 6-for-13. He had three doubles, a home run, three runs batted in. As I mentioned, he's now tied with Mookie Betts and Kevin Pillar with the Major League Baseball lead in doubles as he has 19. His season slash line is 313, 375, and 549. So obviously, the next conversation point when you read off these numbers are, will his recent play heat up trade talks about Jose Abreu, Jim? I think it could, but I guess it remains to be seen what kind of market there is for first baseman. I mean, I think it's a bit early when it comes to markets. Um, first base, DH, um, yeah, there really isn't much... I mean, I guess the theoretically trades can be made because the the Rays just continued selling off by uh, dealing uh, Denard Span and uh, Colome, right? Yep, Colome to uh, Seattle. So I mean, theoretically trades can be made, but we haven't heard much. And um, first base overall has been, as we talked about over the winter and and over spring training, that first base has just been a very slow market to develop, uh, whether it's free agents trades. And so, you know, Bray has been on the end of, you know, where he's making, I mean, he's still making more than, uh, or he still deserves more than he's making. And his salary is not a question with him, but it's more a matter of he's not cheap and you have to carve out room in your payroll to accommodate him. So I'm not really seeing a huge shift in, I guess, how much interest there would be just because, you know, the White Sox have placed a very high price tag on him because of you know his intangibles uh is also his uh um the way he fits in the payroll the way he fits leadership wise and especially with the cubans who are still you know getting acclimated to major league baseball or in Luis roberts case um you know still hasn't gotten his stateside pro career off the ground yet that should be coming soon but i think there's still moving parts there so i don't think there'll be too much in the way of the white Sox trying to drum up interest so i think it'll be half powered like it was over the uh over the winter I could see interest being a little bit more serious with two teams in particular. One is the New York Yankees. Greg Bird is back. But as you know, Jim, living in New York, Bird, especially his recent track of injuries, it's really hard to count on him to be able to stay on the field. And right now, with a cumulative total of the New York Yankees' first baseman, they're at negative 0.2 F4 which is Fangraph's wins above replacement. Jose Abreu is currently at 1.4 wins above replacement, according to Fangraph's. The other team is the Colorado Rockies. For their first base production gym, they are getting negative 2.6 wins above replacement. Trading for Jose Abreu 
and Abreu continued this pace could be as much as a four-win swing for the Rockies. And the Dodgers, you know they're going to make a run. They are too talented, and they're too deep with their pipeline, and they got too deep of pockets to just sit around and be a third-place team in the National League West. So I think those two teams are the teams that I'm paying attention to that could make the market more serious than we've heard in conversations. The Rockies are not a new team. I get that. Um, but when you're getting this poor first base play uh, and you are and you are in first place in your division, uh, I think that you can't wait around and see if it will ever get better for you. And I do think that having an extra year of control with the Bray would be attractive for some teams, especially a team like the Yankees, who I know they're getting close to the luxury tax, but I, I could see them being one of those teams that wouldn't mind taking on an extra year salary of a player like Jose Abreu. Yeah, I, I think it depends on you know what they predict his price tag will be, and I think that's something that teams might be privy to more than uh, you know, more than fans. Even MLB trade rumors they overshot Abreu's first year, and uh, you know they think they expect him to make seventeen. He made thirteen in some, so um, you know whether he can get to twenty million in his last arbitration year uh, might be high. But uh, yeah, I mean. I guess I can see it. I think when it comes to Abreu, though, um, it just doesn't seem like he'd be a guy the White Sox would trade for like a top 100 prospect. Yeah, it just seems, you know, I understand why the White Sox would do that if he wasn't Jose Abreu, if he was, you know, say, if he had Todd Frazier's credibility to where he's, you know, a good, solid professional, um, you know, puts up great numbers, but really has no larger connection to the White Sox organization and, and is just kind of a good veteran, but um, not really as ingrained in the fabric of the team, then I could see that being a trade to make. But I still think for moving Abreu, given what he means, I, I just don't think it would be, well, you know, we ticked off our, our uh, checklist of getting a top 100 prospect and a good arm who's blocked. You know, it just seems like it would have, even if Abreu is not as, you know, it won't command Jose Quintana's price or Chris Sale's price. And I think those set pretty high, and, and Adam Eaton for another one, um, you know, they set really high standards for just like the feel of a package. Like, you know, Mankata and Kopech is an awesome one-two for sale. Um, you know, getting a three-pack of pitchers for Eaton, great. Getting a guy like uh, Jimenez for Quintana and then Cease as a uh, you know, second piece, just it had the right feel for how important those guys were the Sox. You know, it felt uh, like it was appropriate, the package returned. I don't know if there's that package the White Sox would get back based on, I guess, the disparity we've heard about with the White Sox talking about, you know, what they want for Abreu and what teams are willing to give up and nothing goes anywhere. I just think it needs that, given given how important it is, and I, I think there was just a story um, this weekend, I think it was the Sun-Times talking about, you know, an update on the story of Moncada and Abreu and just how, uh, how much of a part Abreu plays in Moncada's everyday life. I just think that's really hard for the White Sox to, I guess, set a price on, or at least one that, you know, is actually um, reflective of what um, Abreu means or, or what he looks like to other teams. Okay. I see that. I love Jose Abreu. I don't want him traded. But if Brian Cashman decides we have to beat the Red Sox to win the American League East, because I do not want to deal with a dumb one-game playoff, especially if it's going to be a team like the Angels and you may have to see Shohei Otani start in that game. 
And if Cashman picks up the phone and offers like Clint Frazier for Jose Abreu, I have to imagine Rick Hahn is going to listen to that conversation a lot longer than laugh at the other GM and hang up after five seconds. That he would take something like that seriously. I could see that. I mean, uh, although with Frazier, I, I'm not. I know he was hurt. I know he missed part of the year, so I don't know exactly what his status is, but he would be interesting. I just think it's really, you know, if I'm I'm thinking as the White Sox have thoughts and and you know speculating on what kind of packages they float out, I think it would just be hard for the White Sox to convert Abreu into a Frazier type and hope that he, yeah, I, I guess hope that he connects, hope that um, you know he develops the way the White Sox think he will and soon. I, I think that's the difficult thing with moving a Bray. I could be wrong, but it just, that, that strikes me as the reason why there really hasn't been any traction whatsoever. That and just how many first basemen have moved in recent, uh, uh, recent years and how, I guess, teams are willing to cut corners on that posi- particular position. Well, then the flip side is, what about a contract extension? No, we're going to have to wait until the offseason uh, in regards to that, I mean, hey, Jim, if he keeps sitting like this, he's not getting any cheaper. I mean, that's that's just the truth. He's not going to get any cheaper. Yeah. You, you won't have to sign him for a long-term deal, but, I mean, he's going to get Carlos Santana money, which is three years, $60 million. Yeah, but, I mean, that's really just might be a continuation of his last year anyway. Sure, but then so you're going to be at that sticking point where he's going to be a free agent. And I guess you could slap a qualifying offer yeah. on him. Yeah, I just think with like, you know, the way Santana signed, he didn't really have a lot of suitors. I just think the, you know, when it comes to uh, players in their early 30s, even players as good as Abreu, I think that there's a limit on how many teams would be going for him. So I think, you know, based on uh, the way the White Sox have played it so far, based on how the league has responded. Also, you know, when you look at a guy like, uh, um, you know, Charlie Blackman signing a contract extension before he hits free agency, I think you know, perhaps, you know, next year might not be out of order either for an extension. It's just been a weird market, I think, for a lot of guys. And it's a strange situation too with the CBA and just how contentious uh, teams and players have been. So I'm not really sure what to make of it, but I can't imagine the White Sox feel a whole lot of urgency to do it now. And, you know, given the strength of the relationship or the seeming um at least on the outside, the strength of the relationship between Abreu and the White Sox. I think I can see them waiting longer to arrange such a thing. Yeah, I can see them waiting to the offseason for sure. Like December at the winter meetings or right before 2019 starts. And again, it wouldn't be a long contract extension. I don't think the White Sox would even entertain a four or five year deal with Jose Abreu. I think it'd be like, two or three years to have him still with the White Sox until 2021 or if maybe a club option to 2022. Right before Sox Fest. There you go. Yeah. Get people excited knowing that Jose Abreu uh, is going to stick around because guess what, Jim? If they don't do that, every single month, Rick Hahn is going to be asked in 2019 What's going on with the Brayu? What's going on with the Brayu? What's going on with the Brayu? You know, all the way to July. <laughs> yeah, but given, yeah, given his experience with uh, answering questions about Kopech and Jimenez, he will have some uh, prefab lines. Oh yeah, well, hold on. What, where's the uh, PR book about Jose Quintana? Let's just replace Jose Quintana with 
Jose Abreu. There we go. And I'll just say the same things I said <laughs> about Jose Quintana before he moved him in July. Uh, I'm, I think it's worthwhile to have this conversation because I'm confident that Abreu is going to continue to hit in June. And there's going to be a lot of people talking about Abreu's market coming to July, especially if the Rockies can still be in first place and they're having that type of poor play. Or if Greg Bird gets hurt again and let's say he misses the rest of the year, the rank the Yankees could be pressed into action. So it'll be interesting to see on what Jose Bray's market would be and how the White Sox play it. But at the meantime, it is incredibly enjoyable to watch on how well Jose Abreu is hitting. It's also very enjoyable to see how well Tim Anderson is hitting. While we rave about Jose Abreu, he's got nine home runs in the year. Tim Anderson is second on the team, Jim, with 10. 10 home runs this season. He had three home runs this weekend. And clearly, when the White Sox are facing a left-handed starter, it makes a ton of sense to have Anderson bat leadoff as he's been very impressive. But I do pose this question. If Anderson's having more success batting leadoff, again, he's facing left-handed hitters, uh, pitchers, I should say, which he's much better at. Uh, should the White Sox entertain the idea of moving Anderson, if not leadoff, uh, maybe in the second uh, batting spot, the two-hole against right-handers as well? I think Yolmer has been okay there, but I think with how shorthanded the White Sox are, I mean, right now, six, seven, eight, nine is kind of a mess, um, especially with Matt Davidson battling a back problem. I, I think if it's, you know, you have Mankata, Yolmer, Abreu, Palka, Anderson, and then after that, it's just kind of a mess. I think, you know, right now it's kind of Anderson maybe batting cleanup, maybe batting fifth. I mean, I think that would probably be a, you know, just when you look at the other guys in the lineup, he's probably the, at worst, fifth most fifth most qualified against right-handed pitching. Still lagging behind. His splits are heavily in favor of left-handed pitching, but I think his pitch recognition is better than it has been in previous years, even against righties, even though the production isn't there. And I mean, he's on pace for a 30-30 season, which would be pretty remarkable. But um, yeah, right now I still think I'd like, you know, when it comes to getting on base um, and having guys for Abreu to knock in, I think, you know, Moncada and Sanchez, or yeah, Moncada Sanchez is working well enough to where it's not really a problem. I just think, you know, after, I wouldn't have, uh, you know, like say Jose Rondon or Adam Angle or, you know, whoever is catching or whoever is playing center or left at this point, I don't think I would have them hitting in front of them. So I think right now it's five spots for major league hitters or major league-ish hitters. And after that's a mess. So top five is fine. You're telling me you have no confidence in Alfredo Gonzalez, Jim? No, but I did like him behind the plate. His actions look pretty smooth. His receiving, his blocking. Um, you don't enjoy pass balls? <laughs> no, but I mean, like, yeah, for a guy playing his first game and for somebody who wasn't probably didn't get that much reps with spring training looked pretty good um, under control. And um, yeah, so at least at the very least with Gonzalez, I think you bat him ninth and you just hope that no big situations find him. But I mean, if Trace Thompson's hitting ahead of him and Adam Engel's been hitting better, but I mean, like still, if you have guys with sub 300 OBPs hitting ahead of him, big situations shouldn't find him. So hopefully, you know, have him catch every four days and, you know, get away with it. I mean, defensively, I don't think there's too much to worry about. Yeah. I bring up the pass balls because Omer Nevaeus, I mean, it's just going to it's gonna be more in the microscope, right? Every time that he's going to get more starts here, his inability to stay in front of the ball right now 
uh, is problem. So we'll see. We'll see if Narvaez can get better. But I'd still like to see Alfredo Gonzalez. I mean, if they're going to play, if he's still going to be with the team, I don't know how many games per week they're going to be. Let's say they play six games. It'd be nice that he gets like two starts. Like I know you said get a start every fourth game. So I guess I'd be okay with that if not have him try to play a little bit more. Uh, and see if he could run into one. But it's not like Narvaez is also lighting the world on fire offensively either. Yeah, I just think there is a marked difference in the bats between them. Although, you know, Gonzalez, give him, give him credit or or at least let him erase a debut off his ledger because, you know, everybody has nerves and whatever. So, But I, I would expect much more from him than what he showed. Um, but, yeah, the, the catching looked nice, the receiving. And, you know, maybe I think Narvaez... Uh, there was a story about him, you know, saying that he needs to get better about pass balls, but also the pitching's been hell. <laughs> I think he said that, you know, not quite in those words, but did say that some guys have been really hard to catch. And I think he was you know, talking about Fulmer and Giolito and such and so. <laughs> you know, if that's the case, maybe have Gonzalez catch Giolito. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that we'll see what Dylan Covey shows and we'll see what, uh, uh, you know, whether Carlos Rodon only needs one more rehab start. But hopefully, you know, one way or another, whether it's because of, improvement or demotions that the pitching staff will bend towards Narvaez's liking. And then after that, we'll just find out if it's just entirely Narvaez's fault, which I'm thinking it's mostly his. <laughs> well, I mean, he may have a point, he does. you know, with, with certain starting pitchers, but still, I mean, when you watch Castillo behind there, it is, there's, there was a difference between the two of them. Well, let's segue into the upcoming series as the Chicago White Sox will face the Cleveland Indians for the first time in 2018. Great news if you're an Indians fan, maybe. The Indians are 26-25. and 25. They won a very, very wild game on Sunday against the Houston Astros where they were up 3-2 to two, and then they gave up six runs late. And then the Astros gave up five runs late, and it was 8-8 eight to eight going into extra innings, and then it went to the 14th inning, and then the walk-off hit, and the Indians beat the Astros. And now the Indians are one game above 500. They're three and a half games ahead of the Detroit Tigers, who are tied with the Minnesota Twins for second place. What is going on in the American League Central? It's a mess, Jim. And the thing about this rebuilding phase that the White Sox are going through uh, not trying to get too excited because I don't think 2019 is going to go all that well as we currently sit um, where we are watching the current 2018 edition of the White Sox. Um, but if I'm a Twins fan, I'd be a little upset that the team's not strong enough right now to take advantage of this slow start by the Indians. And if the White Sox could show some more life in the second half this year, like if we get a chance to actually see Michael Kopech pitch and Aloy Jimenez in the field and getting some at-bats and they have some success, that, you know, next year when we're talking about the White Sox, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could be like the Braves or Phillies next year, especially if they are active in free agency. Not because that the 2019 White Sox could be a 90-win team, but it may only take 85 wins to win the American League Central because I feel like the Indians are on a downtrend. And uh, I don't know, man. Like this Indians team, their bullpen is a serious issue, Jim. They're 29th in FIP and they're dead last in ERA at 6.14 as a bullpen. Uh, just absolutely crazy on how poorly this bullpen has been performing for the Indians. 
does that give the White Sox a good chance to steal a game or two in this series? It could. I'm hoping that, um, you know, based on the length of the game they played, I mean, that's one thing you can say about the series against Detroit is that the starting pitching held up. White Sox really didn't have to go to their bullpen very often. Um, and when they did, it was the, you know, right calls. Um, Renteria did manage the bullpen well. I mean, Rondon blew it, but I think in that situation, Rondon's who you want to give the ball to. He just didn't pitch that well. So, um, you know, but the starting pitching went deep every game. He didn't have to stack relievers. And so the White Sox bullpen is pretty much in full working order, whereas the Indians are coming off a marathon game. So um, I'm hoping that's the case where they do catch him ragged. They do catch him in a, in a situation where Terry Francona doesn't feel right going to the guys he'd normally go to, and thus they can make a bit of a mess of it. But yeah, it seems like a uh, weird Indians team, kind of top-heavy with production. I mean, Ramirez has been great. Lindor has been great. Uh, Brantley's been good. Um, yeah, I think he's just been, his only problem is that he missed some games, but I think he's been, he's back to his near uh, MVP form. And then there's just not a whole lot behind him. So it's kind of similar. Um, yeah, I think the Indians have more name brand talent, but I think when you see the, the size of the production and just how uneven the lineup is, I think these two teams have surprising amount in common um, for a first and last place team. And as you mentioned, Ramirez and Lindor, they are the best one-two punch in baseball as Ramirez is third in terms of wins above replacement and Lindor is fourth in terms of wins above replacement for Fangraphs.com. Mike Trout and Mookie Betts are already at four-plus wins above replacement. Yeah, Trout was nuts against the Yankees. (laughs) It was fun. (laughs) Yeah, Trout is at 4.4 wins above replacement and Betts is at 4.1. It's going to be a very fun American League MVP race and those two guys uh, could continue that torrid pace. But again, I mean, this is just baffling that the Indians are 26 and 25, especially when you, like I said, you have the third and fourth best players on your team. And it's the bullpen that has been so good for the Indians the last couple of years uh, has just completely fallen on their face. On the flip side for the White Sox, the bullpen is 19th in ERA, but when you look at FIP, they're 10th at 3.78. And things have calmed down on the bullpen side. Yes, they did blow that game on uh, Friday with Bruce Rondon not able to hold the lead. Uh, but the White Sox bullpen has been a little bit more consistent here, Jim. They're they're able to mm-hmm. pitch some zeros and keep the other teams scoreless. And, you know, we rave about Jace Fry. Nate Jones seems to be in a good rhythm. Joaquin Soria, sometimes it's a <laughs> it, it's not as clean as you'd like to be. Uh, but the bullpen has been pitching much better. Do you think that this recent success is a sign that things have calmed down and that this unit can be more consistent? I'm kind of surprised by the, those numbers, especially FIP, just because, you know, I think Jones has been shakier than I'd like to see him. I think his his command kind of disappears for a batter or two at a time, and he looks frustrated with himself in the mound, so I don't think he's entirely right yet. So I think there is some room for improvement. I think, Ron, you know, I think the whole, you know, the guys you mentioned, you know, Fry, I think, is, against lefties especially, if Renteria, you know, I guess saves... Fry's outings for lefty heavy innings, even if he's not like a strict loogie, but just, you know, if he's facing uh, two lefties out of three or two lefties out of four and the righties aren't, yeah, I guess, considerable, I can see him, you know, getting full innings. But I think right now the key to it is Jones and Rondone and just how good they look for missing bats over full innings. And Jones, I think, hasn't quite clicked yet. I think Rondone has. Uh, I, I think he's also prone to, you know, having a game off or two just because 
the White Sox got him on a uh, minor league deal and a, in a, a, a invitation to spring training. So I think there's a reason why, you know, they got Rondon so cheap. So uh, there's that. But uh, I'm waiting for Jones to click. And I think Soria is going to be hot or cold because he doesn't have the big stuff. Avalon's okay, but I think, you know, if he's a second lefty rather than the first, the White Sox are better off. So I think Fry brought some order to the left side. And I think... Uh, the starting pitching has gone deep enough to where you don't have Volstad and Beck and, and Bummer having to stretch across, you know, three or four innings in a close game. They're just saved for mop-up work and really just haven't really been seen much at all. And your probable pitchers for this series, again, starting later on Monday at 3.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Dylan Covey against Adam Plutko, Plutko had a no-hitter going into the seventh inning against the Chicago Cubs in his last start. And we raved about Dylan Covey's last start, so this could be somewhat of a pitcher's duel between Covey and Plutko if they can perform at the same level they did in their previous starts. Tuesday. Tuesday could be wild. It's Lucas Giolito against Mike Clevenger of the Cleveland Indians. And on Wednesday, again, Tuesday's game is 5.10 p.m. Central Time. And on Wednesday, May 30th at 12.10 p.m. Central Time, so great opportunity to watch the White Sox during your work lunch, it is Ronaldo Lopez against Corey Kluber. So it'll be an interesting series for the Chicago White Sox before they're off on Thursday, May 31st. And this upcoming weekend, it'll be the Milwaukee Brewers coming into town, which should be a very fun series for both Brewers and White Sox fans. So we'll see how the Indians and White Sox series goes. Again, we will recap that later this week on Sox Machine Live. But Jim and I will reconvene later in the show in P.O. Sox. But coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast, it is Eric Loggenhagen of Fangraphs.com as he'll be joining us to discuss Alec Henson's rehab start and next week's Major League Baseball draft. Before we speak with Eric, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I found to shop for White Sox tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. And I've used SeatGeek recently to buy tickets for Jim Tomey Bobblehead Day on August 11th, and the series against the Angels in September to be able to see Mike Trout and hopefully Shohei Otani in person. And SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to help you get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. And you can make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports, concerts, to comedy, and theater. Best of all, Sox Machine listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Plus, you get to save $10 off all Major League Baseball tickets, and that promotion has extended through June. So to take advantage of these two deals, first, if you've never used SeatGeek before download their app and enter promo code socks machine to save twenty dollars off your first SeatGeek purchase 
And for those that have used SeatGeek before, use promo code MACHINE for $10 off on any Major League Baseball tickets. Again, that's MACHINE for $10 off on any Major League Baseball tickets on SeatGeek.com. We are just a week away from the Major League Baseball draft, and while we do think some teams are settling in with their first-round picks, there are always surprises the day of. Who could the White Sox pick at number four? Well, join us to share his insight and also news from the backfields in Arizona is Eric Loggenhagen from Vangraphs.com. And hello, Eric. Thanks for coming on the show again. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. How are you, Josh? I am doing well. I'm I'm getting excited and a bit nervous and a bit unsure all combined because covering the White Sox and looking at the draft from what the White Sox could possibly do, uh, this is like a nervous time because with the fourth pick in the draft and the way that they're playing, they're going to be in the top five again next year. Uh, they, they, I feel like they they have to find an impact player, and I'm not sure if there is that top-tier impact player at number four. So I'm curious to see how it will break down. But hopefully one of the players that will be impactful for the White Sox in their farm system uh, before we talk about the draft is Alec Hansen. Uh, you got a chance to watch one of his rehab starts down in Arizona as he's recovering from injury. How did Hansen look to you? Uh, he looked fine. I don't know if he went uh, five days earlier for an inning, but he threw two innings for me. I headed out that way. Uh, on spec, I live in Tempe and, and went out to uh, Goodyear just to see if I'd run into uh, Luis Roberts or Nick Senzel and just sort of lucked into Hanson. Um, two innings, mostly through strikes, which I think is the most important thing for him since that was really the, the question mark in college and um, and early in his pro career. He was 92-95. Uh, in his first inning of work, mostly 92-93 in the second. Uh, showed all four pitches. Uh, Changeup looked fine. Curveball looked fine. Slider was bad. But, you know, someone who hasn't picked up a baseball and thrown it competitively in several weeks, you know, in their first, second, third, you know, the first several outings they're going to have, I wouldn't expect their, their breaking stuff to be crisp at all. So, uh, I wasn't concerned by the the slider's lack of effectiveness and was really just focused on the arm strength is there and the strikes are there. And so I thought it was an encouraging rehab outing. Now, is this extended spring training that you're watching? Yep. So f- from my perspective, I have no idea on how that situation is set up with extended spring training. Are they playing games? Are they playing situations? So uh, there are games every – Team, and there are so many teams with uh, an extended this year. Basically, if you if you take everyone from extended, it's all the players in the system that are either going to be in the AZL, in short season leagues, or and some of the kids who will be left back in the Dominican over the summer. And some of the teams have so many players who meet that criteria even before the draft class comes in. Because you figure between the Dominican Summer League, the AZL, and some teams have a Pioneer League team and a Northwest League team or just one or the other uh, or a New York Penn League team. Like It's typically 60 players that are here for extended. And there's a schedule. 
that's set up just like any other affiliate schedule would be. And, you know, I get a hold of the schedules for all of the 18 teams or however many they, there are. Like the Padres have multiple extended teams this year. The Giants have multiple extended teams. Um, and they, they do play games against each other. There are some intra-squads, uh, things that occur. Uh, it's not like a hard format. So like the Mariners and Rangers have canceled some extended spring games uh, this year because they don't have enough pitching on a given day. And if an inning is taking too long, they'll just uh, roll the inning and end the inning early before there have been three outs accrued. And so it really is just sort of glorified scrimmaging. Um, but it's also a place where you, you know, teams scout it, not all 30 teams, but uh, probably about a third of the teams have dedicated extended spring training coverage. And so because I live here, not only do I have a chance to see these guys like Alec Hance and Tristan McKenzie, and next week, next week when uh, Luis Robert is playing down here, I'll see him, and I see the rehabbers, and I also see, you know, it's the, it's when a lot of the July second signees are in the states for the first time, even if they're going to go back to the Dominican for the summer, and you know, it's it's uh, a chance for me to sort of get ahead of uh, of everything and and see some of these guys for the first time and uh, update the industry as to how injured prospects look and how the 16, 17, 18 year old kids coming up. Latin America look as well. And I love that coverage because we often don't get that insight and we get a lot of questions of when is Alec Henson going to show up to Birmingham? And we've got no clue sitting in Chicago. So thank you for all that you do there. Uh, Other than Hanson, have you seen anyone else from the White Sox and have they impressed you? Uh, We just heard that Luis Curbelo is going to be called up to Kannapolis. Yeah, Curbelo... Curbelo can do some things. His his issues have always been uh, timing at the plate. He's been very pull-heavy in my looks, dating back to high school, really. Um, and, yeah, you're looking at him as a third baseman now long-term pretty pretty uh, concretely. So, uh, yeah, he's interesting as far as sleepers go. I'm trying to think. Let me just pull up my extended roster here for the White Sox, and I'll just run through some names for you that have interested me. The uh, the Guerrero kid, whose first name is escaping me because there are so many of them now, <laughs> he's got some interesting bat speed, and uh, Mieses, whose first name is also escaping me, but as soon as I get this rock pulled up here, it won't be a problem. Okay. Uh, so, Jorge Alfaro's brother, Yoandro, uh, is out here, and it looks sort of interesting. Obviously, the bloodlines there have they're not in and of themselves interesting, but the, that, that athleticism is is sort of in that body. Uh, switch hitting, catching prospects are are hard to to come by. Uh, so that's one. Then you have the two bat first, second base prospects in Amado Nunez and Lennon Sosa, who I've got notes on out here. Uh, both those guys are really going to have to hit because uh, there's not a whole lot of physical projection on either of those bodies, both sort of squat 5'10", 5'11", frames. So not a whole lot of power is going to come for either of those, but uh, they both have enough sort of bat-to-ball skills that you could see, okay, maybe this is a 55, 60 hitter who, who does enough damage contact-wise to profile at second base. Uh, then you've got um, Corey Zangari, who's been around, just still the same, like, Big-time power lottery ticket at first base. Josue Guerrero is the um, – he was born in uh, November 23rd of 99, so uh, very young there. Uh, body is a little soft, but you can see, you know, like the he's got that Guerrero bat speed, so if he gets himself into shape, then 
who knows what, what that might turn into. Sort of an interesting guy to follow. And then Luis Mieses, who will turn 18 next week. This is like the, this is, if I'm picking a guy from the group I just said, like, this is the guy. This is 6'3", 180, uh, built real, like a uh, like a small college tight end. Uh, that's like the sort of frame. Uh, has that big uh, backside that sort of indicates that there's there's a lot more mass coming as he ages. And some some left-handed low ball power. Uh, he's a corner outfielder. And uh, some of the bat path needs to be ironed out. But, you know, for a 17-year-old kid to be here in the United States, like you're really just kind of looking at the body and the bat speed and hoping that the organization is helping him assimilate culturally so that uh, when he does arrive here to play, he's, he's like the kind of kid who I would expect they send back to the Dominican for the summer. Um, so the look that you get right now is sort of it until maybe fall instructional league. But when he is here and here to stay, when he's, you know, playing in the AZL or going by uh, the short season ball or whatever, uh, you want him to have – to be comfortable in American culture. And it's it's tough for these kids who, who get money and are just asked to go live in a, an entirely different culture and some teams are better at it than others. So he's getting his feet wet here. That's the most important thing right now. But the field tools are worth uh, monitoring with Luis Mieses. Outside of Michael Kopech and Aloy Jimenez, do you have any favorite current White Sox prospects in their farm system? Well, like uh, everything I've seen from Lou Bob is pretty ridiculous. I was lucky enough to see him with the Cuban national team the summer before he defected. They were playing um, the Can-Am Independent League. They were touring through there. And he and uh, Julio Pablo Martinez both were in Cuba's outfield. And at the time, you know, there was discussion about Robert having tried to defect. There was international. There were some international scouts telling me that they thought he had defected before that. Uh, he just sort of gone off the radar. There's like a chance that he had tried and was caught. And it, anyway, he was heavy when I saw him. And the Cuban players, their physiques uh, have a tendency to yo-yo. A lot of them aren't on weight programs at all. Um, and so if they're you know, trying to defect that, uh, or have been caught and, you know, aren't allowed to play baseball for a little while. Like a lot of different things impact their conditioning. So when I saw him while he was still in Cuba, I saw like a patient power hitting corner outfielder. And then when he finally did defect, obviously, you know, he has one of the best bodies in all of professional baseball now. And, uh, seeing him this spring during spring training, he was in that hitting camp they had very early on with some of the top prospects. And it was just clearly a different guy plus run at least plus raw power. You know, we have to, we still have to see how he hits in games against professional pitching. That's just sort of a variable that we're not totally sure about right now. He just ate up DSL pitching alive last year, like it's just not doesn't tell you anything. Uh, but the tool the tool set there is obviously ridiculous. I mean, this is a good farm system. I think it's top heavy. Uh, I was not like a Jake Berger guy. Uh, we're sort of lukewarm at Fangraphs on Dylan Cease, and you know we we like what he can do, but don't think the skill set is complete. And uh, like our our assessment of the farm system, the article itself goes up. I want to say in the next couple days. It's the last one we have to do. But the list of guys that we have ranked is already on the site and has been for several weeks. And it's a strong system with a lot of guys to like. It's just, you know, the names are pretty obvious. I've been on the Sebi Zavala train since he was at San Diego State. And I still think A.J. Puckett's 
combination of athleticism and change up and uh, he was a two sport kid in high school till he had that car accident like so there's some more baseball focused development coming there and I really think Jamison Fisher can hit and you know it's just this the system is littered with really interesting guys and um, I'm excited to see them uh, develop Victor Diaz the other guy they got in the um, the sale deal from Boston who's just sort of been, I don't know if you guys are on him at all, but like we, our reports on him have 94, 96, touch 100 with a 70 changeup. So like uh, it's all over the place and some of these guys get lost in the shuffle. We're just hoping that Victor Diaz can stay healthy. That just seems to be the issue right now for Diaz because I mean that deal for the White Sox have gotten, especially the step forward that Luis Basabe has taken, at least in gameplay at Winston-Salem has been quite promising. It's the... Adam Eaton trade that White Sox fans are a little worried about. Well, not worried about Ronaldo Lopez, just worried about Lucas Giolito uh, as far as how that will continue to progress. Now, we, you spoke about as far as the pipeline and the White Sox are littered with many interesting names. I think this is a good segue to the draft because the White Sox have another opportunity to continue to build the pipeline. And I listened to your guys' Fangraphs audio podcast. Highly recommend it for all the listeners. Just go to Fangraphs Audio. It's Kylie, it's Eric, and it's Carson Satuli. And great conversation about what is coming up to the draft. A great insight. And I just want to say you and Kylie have been doing a terrific job covering the draft this year and bringing additional insight on what's going on. Because with this class, I just don't feel like there's surefire prospects that, again, will provide an impact to a team in three to four years. That it, There's some good depth and there's some interesting skill sets, but you know everybody keeps saying, well, where's the Bryce Harper and where's the Chris Bryant? I don't know if there is one in this draft. Grading the class as a whole, Eric, do you disagree with that? Are there some guys that you think that could be impact players? Uh, and what do you think that the strengths are with this draft class? So, yeah, doing... Using, like, heuristics at the top of the draft is tough. You know, for the last, I don't know, five years, I'm trying to think of how many drafts I've covered now is, like, uh, a huge aspect of my career. Because when I was living in uh, the Northeast, it was just, like, I would cover the draft regionally in the Northeast. Like, I'd go see the kids in, in the Ivy League and in, you know, uh, the big five schools in Philly, I'd scout them. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, George Springer and Matt Barnes and Nick Ahmed would come down from UConn. And, like, you'd see some of the, the those types of talents. Uh, but for the most part, you know, I wasn't seeing uh, the top talents in the draft and couldn't get a, a real feel for what the top of the classes looked like. And since uh, when I, once I joined ESPN to cover the draft specifically – uh, that's sort of where my personal Rolodex of like draft experience began. And so like I didn't see Bryce Harper at the College of Southern Nevada and I didn't see Steven Strasburg at San Diego State and stuff. But at this point, I'm just starting to think that like those guys, you know, every year we say there's no Bryce Harper in this draft. Like there's just no – like there's just one Bryce Harper. That's like a once every 10 years guy. That's your uh, Durant – and, uh, you know, the way Greg Oden was perceived at the time, like that's these are the generational talents. So, no, there's not a guy like that this year. There's just not typically a guy like that in any year. Even Chris Bryant had question marks um, coming out of San Diego. The Astros specifically just did not think they were con- had concerns about his contact rate. Um, 
And so, like, this year's draft, the two guys at the top, the way that you can sort of tell us based on the way we do this is, like, if Bryce Harper were in this draft, he would probably just be, like, a a 70 future value. We use, like, the the 20 to 80 scouting scale to put a number on these guys that sort of combines what their upside is uh, also on the 20 to 80 scale. And then we sort of dilute it based on, based on what the risk profile is, is like. Um, so the two guys that we have at the top of the draft are, are Casey Mize at Auburn and Nick Madrigal at Oregon state. We have 55s on each of those guys. Um, last year I had a 60 on Kyle Wright at the top of the draft he was sort of the only one up there. Uh, I guess you could have put Hunter Green up there with, as a 60 as well. Vlad Guerrero Jr. is a 70 for us right now as a 19-year-old. So basically, like, as a high schooler, if he were in this draft, he'd be a 70 and, like, clearly that type of talent at the top of the class, that Harper-type talent. Uh, so the draft, this year's draft in general, and I do think all drafts are sort of unique and hard to describe in a sentence or two. Um there's there are five or six college guys at up at top who have uh, a combination of certainty or perceived certainty and talent that has them up that high, and then the rest of the class is heavy on uh, high school pitching, and in general it's a deeper than average draft class. Uh, it's one where a handful of teams are going to have a lot uh, to say about what happens in what I find to be the interesting parts of the draft in like the, the comp rounds, early second rounds where teams add an extra high end talent or two, if they uh, do their math correctly and, and sort of game the, the MLB bonus pool situation uh, effectively. Uh, so I think it's a pretty interesting draft. Uh, I do think it's a, a talented draft. It's, it's volatile. Uh, even the high school or even the college position players at the top have a question mark or two. Uh, certainly, uh, if you're less inclined to uh, just to not care about some of the the old scouting nomenclature, uh, things related to player size and uh, the way deliveries look and such, uh, then there's less. But you know, it's it's a pretty mixed bag. But generally, I think it's a pretty good draft. When it comes to the Detroit Tigers at number one, do you think that it's going to be Casey Mize? Or do you think that they'll go in another direction and decide, no, we need a college bat. We're going to take someone like Joey Bart. Or we're going to take someone like Jared Kelenic, the prep outfielder from Wisconsin. So any of the discussion about anything other than Mize at one, the focus of the discussion has to be around Mize and and his physical health. Uh, it's hard to t- t- sit here and say that a guy who's throwing 93, 96 every weekend is hurt. But if you're the Tigers, you want to know all the things about Casey Mize and just some of the information that we have learned about MLB's uh, medical collection process before the draft indicates to us that the Tigers will not know uh, everything they that there is to know about Casey Mize's medical situation before the draft, unless they've obtained his, uh, like a fresh MRI or whatever individually from Mize and his agent, which is technically not allowed under the CBA, but happens all the time. So it's possible the Tigers have seen like an MRI and are cool with it. But as far as we know, like not all 30 teams have seen one, you know what I mean? Uh, so 
if you're making that decision at one, your options are you can either take Mize with some blind spot, like this medical blind spot, with a fallback option of the second pick next year. If you take him, you, you uh, do his post draft physical, and you know he's some he's broken for some reason. Um, then and you don't sign him, then you get the second pick next year. So the fallback isn't terrible if like the worst case scenario. Um, and so in my opinion, I still think they'll take him. I think that that's a pretty sound uh, fallback option if, you know, should something go wrong. And all that we really know about the situation is Mize missed two starts last year with forearm soreness. He had more forearm soreness over the summer with Team USA. We know he had treatment for on his arm in August of last year. It was non-surgical. And then, you know, the MLB medical collection process uh, before the draft, they ask the top 50 pitching prospects to submit this, that, and the other thing to guarantee themselves 60% of slot wherever they're picked. And Mize didn't necessarily submit to all of those things, but neither did like half of the pitchers that MLB asked to. So that's not necessarily a huge red flag either, but there seems to be some gray area there. And we don't think the gap between Mize and like the next four or five guys is so huge that you shouldn't at least think about Joey Bart or Nick Madrigal or whoever. So like we think it would be justifiable for the Tigers to look at other players and we know their GM, Al Avila, has been out seeing other players, but that also might just be to leverage Mize's agent. So, like, there's a lot of gray area here. I ultimately just think they're going to take him. So then for the White Sox, at pick number four, it seems that the Giants, the dream is Joey Bart, and the Phillies have been pegged with Alec Baum for a while. Yeah. That leaves some interesting names for the White Sox, in which Nick Madrigal, your number two player, would be available for the White Sox to select. There are some that think Brady Singer, the starting pitcher out of the University of Florida, could be an option for the White Sox. And also his teammate Jonathan India might be a dark horse, along with Travis Swaggerty, the outfielder from South Alabama. What do you think the White Sox are going to do at this draft slot a week before they actually have to make the pick? Would it make sense for them to take Nick Madrigal, even though they have a budding superstar at second base with Yohan Mikata? Well, you hate to think about it like that when you're in the draft room. You know, stuff happens to to guys. The rate of attrition, even at the big league level, is such that, you know, you try not to make decisions in the draft room based on what's going on with your big club. Okay. Moncada's also, I mean, you know, he is... he has limitations defensively at second base. It's not like he's Brandon Phillips or Orlando Hudson there or anything like that. But Madrigal is <laughs> like Madrigal might be a plus plus defensive second baseman. So when you're starting to put the pieces together, like would Moncada's wheels look pretty good in center field? Yeah, I think so. So you know, short of of angering Moncada by asking him to move positions or whatever, like I wouldn't have any reservations about the fact that they. The, the same position is listed next to each of their names right now. I love Madrigal. Uh, I saw every game he played for the first several weeks of the year because they were down here in Arizona because it's warm in February. And I saw him get hurt. And uh, But it was like six games of him doing everything, just being amazing at second base. He's got one of the quickest pivots at second base uh, that I've seen on a domestic amateur player. He's a plus-plus runner. He has plus back control. He's a terrific athlete. He squares the ball up. 
I know he's little, but so is Ozzy Albies, and so are all the other, you know, the little uh, Pedroia and Altuve and Luis Urias and, like, Scott Kingery and, like, the list of these guys who are 5'10 and down who are just doing it is growing. And I think if you square up the big league baseball right now that it's going to go. And so I don't have any uh, reservations about this kid hitting for power in the big leagues as well because I think he's going to square it up. So I'd be all over Madrigal if he were there at four. The singer stuff is true. Kylie did see Hahn and Kenny Williams in to see Florida. I think that's where some of the, the mentions of India's name come from too because when you see these guys in to see Florida, you never know if they're seeing Singer or Jackson Kowar or, uh, or, in, or India. So um, some of the lines are blurred there with Chicago and Cincinnati um, as far as who they're on. I do think the singer stuff is, is true. I'd probably have Swaggerty back uh, uh, as a, like a darker horse in that situation with Singer and uh, Madrigal at the forefront. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's the sort of situation. I would take Madrigal if he were on the board. I think the Reds covet him at five, uh, and I sort of think that those two guys, Singer and Madrigal, are probably going uh, four and five in some in some order. The one thing that could throw a wrench into it that I do think there's some merit is we've heard the Giants under slot at two with Cole Wynn. Well, I suppose Wynn might not have a home until pick 10, and so theoretically you could get him to sign for $5 million and save like $2.5 million, move that back to pick 45 and have like $4 million to give somebody at pick 45. You're kind of playing with fire if you're trying to move someone back to like Kumar Rocker or something, like all the way back to pick 45. Like that'd be pretty tough for the Giants to do, so... I still think they're going to take Bard, and uh, I think Tom goes three, and I just I do think Madrigal will be there at four, and that I he would be my pick. Yeah, I've been mocking Madrigal to the White Sox for a month now, and I do think it will be coming down to Madrigal and Brady Singer. I look at it from the perspective as well, Eric, is that the White Sox need more middle infield depth in their farm system. That seems to be an area that's pretty thin right now, uh, that without confidence – that who they currently have in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and even in Charlotte could help contribute to the major leagues if there was a major injury to like a Tim Anderson or, or a Yohan Mikata or things change and those guys leave the team. Uh, so that's why I would rather have the White Sox go with the bat. And if they want to add pitching, there's as you mentioned before, there's plenty of depth later in the rounds to get that pitching. My, my last question for you, for the White Sox draft strategy, the, since Nick Hosteller's taken over, when you look at the first 10 rounds, the White Sox have drafted nine college players, and they've taken a high school project. We talked about one of them, Luis Cabello. Last year, Sam Abbott, who didn't even have a baseball scholarship. He was going to go play water polo. I watched Abbott hit a ball like 420 feet the other way this spring, too. So, All right. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's positive because that's all I knew about the kid, and uh, that's great to hear. But for that type of draft strategy, where the White Sox have been very, very college heavy, is that something that raises a red flag for you? Or is that one of the smarter ways to go? Because as you mentioned, their body types, they go through these big universities sometimes, and they have a better understanding of how to eat well and have a good workout or stick to a workout plan. They're facing more advanced pitching. What are your thoughts about as far as the White Sox being very college heavy with their picks? 
you could argue that trying to fit high schoolers into your draft class, especially premium ones, means that you have to do uh, a lot more work that's not just scouting the players to get it right. Because once you're sort of committed to doing something like that or are considering being creative once the draft starts, if you sort of started to enact that throughout your draft and then dominoes fall in such a way, like the whole thing can kind of get, be undone. So there's more stability in not just the talent but in uh, the process itself if you're focused on college players. But it is like if I were a White Sox area scout, like that would bum me out. Like why am I chasing these – interesting high school kids in my area if realistically we're like not going to take any of them you know or if just one of us is going to get one of these guys like that's that's not a you know i wouldn't want to work for a team that did that uh some of the teams who do it in a way that i think is more justifiable are like you know the 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 north siders have taken like nothing but college pitching because like they're trying to run all of that up the developmental ladder quickly as uh, their pitching gets older and more expensive. Like John Lester's not going to be around forever. You Darvish has had ups and downs. Like uh, you want to run that that cheap pitching up the ladder so you can keep all those expensive hitters on your roster as they age into their prime. Um, so like there's a like that's a reason to do it. With the White Sox, it's less clear and more. It just seems like it's their strategy. And I get, I understand the pros of it, um, but I think the cons are numerous enough that it, it, it wouldn't be a hardline annual strategy for me. Well, you can follow Eric. He's at Login Hagen on Twitter, and you'll want to read his excellent writings about the upcoming draft. Again, that's next week. And the minor league prospects, as he has mentioned, that is coming up on fangraphs.com, looking at the White Sox farm system. And of course, Eric also writes for ESPN.com. And Eric, as always, this is an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for taking all this time and uh, to come on the Sox Machine podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Josh. Anytime. Before we get into the minor league reports, a PSA as we are going to be having a Sox Machine meetup. Yes, a meetup for June 16th as the Chicago White Sox will play against the Detroit Tigers. That is a Saturday and that game starts at 1.10 p.m. Central Time. As Jim and I will love to meet some of you, our faithful listeners and readers of Sox Machine. And if you are interested in coming to the meetup, you can either go to our Eventbrite page that we have set up, or you can email me at josh at soxmachine.com to let me know how many tickets you would like for the game. Tickets are just $25 to attend the game. And the tickets will be located in the lower 100 section down the right field line. So we'll be in the shade and not baking in the sun for that game. And again, if you are interested in partaking, you can get more details at SoxMachine.com and email me at Josh at SoxMachine.com to reserve your tickets for the Sox Machine meetup on June 16th. Welcome to the Minor League Report. The White Sox farm system is exactly where we left it last week, for better or for worse. For instance, the Charlotte Knights still only have pitching. Jordan Stevens is handling the promotion to AAA well, going 3-for-3 in quality starts since joining the Knights. He has a 2.45 ERA over 18 and one-third innings, holding opponents to a 2.25 average with 4 walks to 14 strikeouts, and he's yet to allow a homer. He's been steadier than Michael Kopech, who walked 4 over 5 innings his last time out. The good news is he limited the damage to just 2 earned runs, thanks in large part to 8 strikeouts. 
James Fegan in The Athletic noted that Kevin Smith got Kopech throwing his curveball more, which could end up supplanting the changeup as a slower pitch that deters lefties. That would be kind of funny, given how big a deal the White Sox have made of the supposed need for changeup progress. The bigger immediate concern is whether Carlos Rodon can pick up where he left off. He'd recorded six of the first seven outs via strikeout against Norfolk on Thursday, before a line drive hit him in the forehead. He needed staples to close a cut, but he showed no concussion symptoms and should be able to take the mound again on a regular schedule. If he makes mincemeat of AAA hitters once again, it would be hard to justify another rehab start. Position player-wise, the most interesting guy right now might be Casey Gillespie, which is uh, saying something. That's because Eloy Jimenez is still in Birmingham and still doing awesome things down there. He hit a go-ahead ninth-inning Grand Slam on Saturday and further raised his average on Sunday with a 2-for-4 day. His OPS is two points over 1,000 on the season. Zach Collins has raised his average to 268 as he seems intent on seeing his hot May all the way through to the finish. He's hitting 316 with a 495 on on-base percentage and 544 slugging percentage this month. And while the strikeout rate is still a touch high at 26%, it's manageable with the kind of power he's showing. He's getting the bulk of the catching duties now with Sebi Zavala on the DL with wrist issues. There isn't much for him to catch, though. The Barons' rotation is still in the same shape. Ian Clarkin, Spencer Adams, and Jordan Guerrero all have ERAs over six. And Dane Dunning is still adjusting for the level, with control issues that limit him to five innings at a time. Winston-Salem still has the opposite problem. The Winston-Salem Dash were 5-for-5 in quality starts this past week, including strong outings from Dylan Cease and Bernardo Flores, but the offense is still battling regression. Blake Rutherford and Mike Rodolfo are both batting in the 180s over their last 10 games, Luis Alexander Pasave has only started to reheat after a mid-month slump, and Gavin Sheets is 2-for-17 after homering in back-to-back games. There's still time to buy stock in Taekwon Forbes, though, as he's leading the Dash with a 329 average in May and with an enviable amount of contact and the Kannapolis Intimidators are still rolling top to bottom. They have the South Atlantic League's best record at 31-17, including a 17-7 mark in May. Luis Gonzalez and Laz Rivera continue to show no signs of regression, both having 900 OPSs at the top of the order, and the Intimidators' rotation is yet to miss Cade McClure, who's out of action for at least a couple more weeks with a knee sprain. Kannapolis did add to the ranks. Luis Curbelo, an overslot sixth-round pick in the 2016 draft, joined the roster this week to give the Intimidators a new youngest player. The 20-year-old is off to a slow start, going 1-for-11 with five strikeouts through three games. He started two of them at third. Also, Will Kincannon, the 11th-round pick out of Indiana State last year, made his first appearance of the season on Sunday. The Western Suburbs native signed for $150,000 last year, or 50% more than the untaxed maximum, so the Sox would seem to have some plans for him. That's it for the Meyer League Report. Now we'll answer your questions in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Socks Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, or helping to support the show by becoming a friend of the podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine and rejoining me on this show to answer your questions is Jim Margulis. And Jim, let's dive into the mailbag. First question that we have is from Stryker. And Stryker's asking, the San Diego Padres picked up a draft pick by trading for Philip Hughes. Are the White Sox missing out on opportunities by not leveraging their payroll flexibility? Well, for some background, in case um, you're not familiar with the deal, the White Sox, or the Twins DFA'd Phil Hughes. He's basically at the end of his 
career. He's had shoulder issues. And so um, DFA'd him and, and the Padres came along and there probably weren't many takers for him uh, given that he's owed, um, I think, $22 million on the uh, uh, rest of his deal. And so the, the Twins, came, or, sorry, the Padres came along and said like, well, I see you have a competitive balance pick, which can be traded. Um, if we'll kick in some cash, we'll take uh, we'll take Hughes. We'll you know kind of do a player exchange, and then we'll take a draft pick. And so they basically bought a draft pick for seven point two five million dollars, and it's the number seventy four pick overall. So that helps um, beef up the Padres draft pool a little bit. And the White Sox, I think, could be in that position. I think there are maybe not many opportunities to do so just because there aren't all that many competitive balance picks that can be traded. So, um, you know, the Padres might have gotten, yeah. And and the Padres, I think are pretty creative in this regard. I mean, we saw that, uh, with the way they stacked rule five picks last year, basically just, uh, you know, I guess, um, forsaking a few roster spots to just stock up on other teams, interesting prospects. And even if it uh, really thinned their bench out, they did that. And so I, I think they're, uh, they're creative. I don't know how we've seen them build teams you know, I think the, there are a lot of things in common between the Padres and White Sox in terms of their trajectories, in terms of trying to rebuild on a hurry, tearing it down again, building up again, building good farm systems this time. And, uh, we saw them spend on Eric Hosmer, and so far they're still in last place in the NL West. So uh, I don't quite know how their team building is coming along and whether they can, but they are creative in that regard. I just think the Padres might have you know, found something here with the, with the Twins, and I, I think the White Sox should keep that open because they do have a clean payroll this year and the next year. So, I mean, if they find a, a team on a similar or looking to shed a similar contract, you know, maybe they can work something out. But I think it's – they're only a, – a, trying to think how many teams there are i think 10 teams that have competitive balance picks um so it's just a thin market for teams that can actually deal them and so uh when you get to the point of teams actually wanting to let go of them and having contracts they're giving up i don't know if there will be many opportunities but should there be um the white Sox have the payroll to absorb one assuming they aren't spending some kind of extravagant amount this coming off season so you're saying they should go after Hanley Ramirez? Yeah, okay. Boston. I thought that's one name that crossed my mind. It's like, yeah, Boston doesn't have a competitive balance pick. I, that would be an opportunity, though, if they did. I, I don't think they can. Yeah. Isn't this the weird? I feel like this is the weird one. Like, St. Louis always gets one, right? Because of market size or something like that? Yeah. Yep. Well, it's interesting what San Diego does. That's the only thing that I could say about their team building and how they go approach things. Because... You know, you know, for seven point two five million dollars, that that draft pick though doesn't add a whole lot to their draft pool. Maybe a million dollars, I think it does. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of value they get, or if that pool money helps them with their first two rounders, and maybe they can recoup some of that value that they spent with those first two round picks, mm-hmm. and they need that extra million dollars. It'll be quite interesting to see how the Padres handle uh, their draft as far as the first day next week on Monday. Great question, Striker. Thank you for your question. Our next question comes from Bill Kuhn, and Bill's asking, likelihood of the White Sox getting something for James Shields at the deadline? If he's pitching the way he is in May, and that's a sub-4 ERA and giving the Sox innings, um, kind of describes what Miguel Gonzalez was doing for the White Sox last year. It's a long way to go to the deadline, and even then, Gonzalez wasn't moved till August, and I think, you know, should Shields somehow carry this junk balling or anything all the way into the summer maybe an august trade 
might be likely for a team that's desperate. I just don't think Shields is going to be that big of a... I don't think he offers that much value because, one, you know, he's he gets by on kind of smoke and mirrors at this point and, and veteran guile. But also, you know, he's not somebody you can really kick somebody out of a rotation for. He's not somebody you can slide into a bullpen. He's not going to be great in short relief work. He's kind of there to soak up six innings at a time and be adequate. And uh, as we saw with Gonzalez, that just doesn't bring back much. Although, you know, the White Sox have been good with those deals. Um, you know, Gordon Beckham was one. Got Yancey Almonte, which turned into Tommy Canely, which turned into uh, Blake Rutherford. And then uh, right now with uh, Gonzalez getting Taekwon Forbes. I uh, mentioned him in the minor league report. He's having a nice uh, season with the Winston-Salem Dash. And and, and showing some gains in his uh, hit tool and um, you know, hopefully the other parts of his game, um, you know, maybe drawing war, either drawing walks or, or hitting for power come along, but he's got a foundation now to his approach. So, you know, I, I don't want to uh, dismiss those trades as being uh, nothing, but um, it would take that kind of either um, prospect a team has gotten tired of, an A-ball, or a player to be named later. And I think Shields has a long way to go before he can justify that, but... Um, to give him credit, I mean, he's doing exactly what the White Sox need him to do. And uh, it's, it's definitely making the White Sox easier to watch uh, on his days. And uh, with with Lopez coming along, with uh, with Fulmer going down and Covey off to an encouraging start, the White Sox are watchable now. They are. He is pitching a lot better than I was expecting him to. It's the grunts. Yeah. It's the grunts that really have really given him that extra edge. The slower he throws, the louder they are. <laughs> you know what? It throws me off watching the game. I can't imagine what it's like trying to hit against Shields right now. <laughs> but Bill, great question. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Right Socks, and they're asking Jim, Daniel Polka or Nicky Delmonico? Still leaning towards Delmonico, just because he's got the plate approach that Polka doesn't have, and and we've seen. Delmonico have the hot starts and we've seen him come back down to earth and, and we've seen the league make adjustments to him and he still has a good plate approach. He just, you know, for whatever reason, his contact was underpowered. Um, I'm not sure whether that's Delmonico hitting a ceiling or Delmonico needing to make an adjustment to the adjustments, but um, there's a lot, they have a lot in common. They're both uh, lefty. They're both bad defensively in a corner. They're both okay on the base paths. Um, Delmonico is a year younger and he's newer to the outfield. So I think there's a little bit more upside there. Um, but, uh, Polk is fun to watch. I mean, I think this year he's giving the White Sox a little bit of entertainment value, a little bit of mystery, just how hard he swings, how, uh, yeah, how he just crushes some balls, even if they're, um, you know, grounders getting through the infield. He's had, I think three triples now. So he's got enough speed to not be a complete base clogger and, you know, they overshift him. So he's able to get some cheap singles. So, there's some stuff to like there, and I think uh, he's a good guy to have in this kind of season to where he's entertaining, even if he's uh, a very incomplete player. But I think there will be, you know, given just how hard he swings and sometimes how indisciplined his swings look, I think there stands a good chance of being a reckoning with his approach and a prolonged outage. And I think Delmonico is able to avoid that just because he has the uh, strike zone judgment that Polka doesn't quite have. So I think I'd give Delmonico the edge, but... Um, just given the strength of Polka and the strength of his contact, um, there is some entertainment value there and gives him a chance of being productive in a, whether it's a two, it's probably more of a two true outcomes way, but he'll hit some dingers. You know, I don't know. He started to grow on me, Jim. He's starting to grow. I mean, Oh, he's fun. 
he can't play right field. I mean, he can't play any defensive position. Like, Polka is a true DH. Because <laughs> you should not have him out in the yeah. outfield. But I wonder. I mean, no opposing team should ever throw a first pitch fastball in the zone against Polka. Because he's going to go for it. And he he could crush it. He could barrel mm-hmm. it up. So it's going to force opposing teams to pitch him differently. And if he can just learn a little bit of patience, I wonder if that will make him into a much better hitter. Delmonico, obviously he's been dealing with the injury, getting hit in the hand. And yes, you do mention as far as offense approach, but I'm worried about the power. And hopefully, I don't know if we're going to see it this year. It may take until 2019 before we see it again because everybody heals from hand injuries in different matters, right? You know, we've always been hearing that hand injuries mm-hmm. just sap the power from a hitter. And we, we may not see it this year from Delmonico, and that will be disappointing. But as you mentioned, Polka is a lot of fun, and he's coming up with some very fun home runs, and that big man can move. As you mentioned, he's got three triples this year. I don't know. In a rebuilding year, it's always fun to see what guys that can entice you. And that was Delmonico last year of, hey, can Delmonico be an effective DH? Can he hit 20-plus home runs? And I don't think that's going to happen this year. But now the question is, can Polka hit 15 home runs for the White Sox? Is he going to get that opportunity to do so? Should he get that opportunity to do so? I don't know. be interesting to see. But I, I guess if I had to answer the question... I'm going to go Team Polka on this one, Jim. Cool. I am I am losing confidence in Nicky Delmonico because you know what? Nicky Delmonico probably shouldn't be in the field either, but he's not as bad defensively as Polka. <laughs> yeah, I think Delmonico just has a very specific play. He doesn't make the one over his head. Uh, like going straight back, I think he hasn't figured out how to do that yet. And every time Polka catches a ball, I'm shocked. Yeah, I think Delmonico can go in front of him where Polka sometimes plays deep and does not get reads and balls in front of him. I think Delmonico can go to the foul line well, or at least well enough. But yeah, just I think it's the ones, and those are painful because those turn into uh, doubles and triples versus singles, you know, where, whereas, you know, like say if you let a ball drop in front of you, it's only one base. So I think Delmonico's weakness is painful to watch, but I'd give him the edge. And given that he's a year younger, um, there's a little bit more upside there. I don't think either is going to be... Um, a, a, even an average outfielder, but you know, being that Delmonico is 25, whereas Polk is 26, uh, there is that wiggle room. I don't think either is going to be part of the next winning White Sox team, but it is a fun conversation to have yeah. right now. Maybe if Polka can learn the Carlos Lee of how to play defense in the outfield, uh, that might improve his wins above replacement. But anyways, it, I'm on team Polka. Jim's on team Delmonico. It'd be great to hear what you guys think, and hopefully we can see Delmonico come back off the DL, and uh, maybe the White Sox find a way to have both guys in the lineup, and uh, hopefully that means the White Sox will score some more runs this summer. But great question, White Sox. Thank you very much. And that will do it for this week's P.O. Sox. Thank you guys so much for submitting your questions. Again, if you have a question or a topic you would like us to tackle on the show, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And you can also help support the show by signing up to become a friend of the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up. 
and you do get extra content from us every single week. Our supporters this week got an opportunity to ask additional questions to Eric Loggenhagen about the White Sox prospects, about Alec Hansen, also about some options the White Sox have in the second round of the Major League Baseball draft. And our supporters also get an opportunity to submit extra P.O. Sox questions that Jim and I answer just for their listening ears. And they don't get to hear any of our sponsors as well. So if you want an ad-free show and you want extra content from us every single week, whether in the podcast or in writing, again, go to patreon.com slash machine and sign up today to help support the website and the podcast. And that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the show, there are a variety of ways you can describe. One is through iTunes by going to the iTunes store and searching Sox Machine. If you do listen to us in iTunes, please leave us a review. Love to hear your feedback. You can also subscribe via Spotify. Just go to Spotify, search Sox Machine, and click follow to get new episodes uploaded into your feed as well as Google Play Music Store for the Android smartphone users, and of course, as always, with audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything... You need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the Pathfinders breaking new ground, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24 7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you, so you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.